Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like coins, posing and lemons. Ooh. Oh, posing. We should definitely do posing, mm. Sam. I, I can't quite get my, my head around it as a concept yet, but I'm, I'm sure I will do so. Or we could do bikes, hikes and mics, in other words microphones, and we use those all the time, trikes, likes and mics. In other words, the history of Michaels, from Michelangelo <laughs> to Michael Jackson via Michael Faraday and Michael Schumacher. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds, as we always do, as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of patience... Patients, medical patients, rather than actually being patient. The history of patients is, in fact, all about history from below. It's about smells and noises. It's about introspection, Samuel Pepys, Charles Darwin, architecture and Dr Chapman's spinal ice bags. Of course it is. And if you want to find out more, you can listen to our back episode on that. Or who knew that the history of uncles is in fact all about the reign of Edward VI, which was one of our recent homeschooling episodes, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was wonderfully good fun. Um, the man telling you all of these wonderful things, let's just say that if history were a mountain range such as the Alps, he would be the inspirational general capable of coaxing across those sure-footed and unusually small North African forest elephants all the way to Rome where they could finally rest and feast on pasta before tackling the might of the Roman Empire in their elephanty way. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I, I, I love the, the description of me as, as Hannibal rather than an, an elephant, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly elephantine. However, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grim days of lockdown in the UK 3.0. Well, let's just say if he were an elephant-related historian, he'd only be the father of the American circus, Hakaliah Bailey, the man who brought an elephant, thinking that he could use it as a horse to plough his fields. But this elephant ate so much food that instead he decided to take her on the road as a spectacle and charged people money to come along and see her. There is a link here, I promise you. <laughs> so ingenious is this man that he changes tack in his historical inquiry when he hits a dead end. It's the historical entrepreneur and historical pivoter the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Very good. A ploughing elephant. Yes. Yes. Uh, it happened in America. I don't believe such a thing, but I do, It actually. absolutely yeah. did. There's a book about it that I'm going to talk about very briefly. Hmm. Well, um, 
we're doing elephants, guys. Uh, for uh, I, I don't know why. Um, I is it because there's one in the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter, our hometown, James? Why did it's, we suddenly think of it? Uh, we suddenly thought about it because it 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 occurred to me that we should do elephants. Oh right. <laughs> so the way that I normally pick the way that I normally pick these episodes is I'm I'm sort of I'm going through daily life and I'll sort of I'll read something or I'll see something or literally I'm 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 you know sitting in the living room reading and something happens like I don't know um somebody is putting on a pair of glasses and I think oh we'll do glasses and somehow uh, elephants appeared in my life somehow <laughs> so I thought it would be interesting and a challenge yeah. but the challenge is to think about how do you do an unexpected history of elephants yeah well how do you do elephants full stop really exactly I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite enjoying the um uh, or animal theme. Having done snakes so recently, I actually want to go do more snakes. Ants, I've come across. I want to do ants as well. So Ooh, I, do you know I want what? to do ants. Having done this, having done, we'll do today. We'll do the biggest ones we can. We'll do the big animal, the elephant. Let's go tiny and do ants. Oh, and then let's do the bear. I think okay. bears are fascinating. Mm, okay, looking forward. To and that. and fleas. I'd like to do fleas. Right. Okay. Well, well, let's go to. We'll do um, ginormous and microscopic. All right, yes. we'll do a, do a bit of a, a bouncing theme on those. We'll, 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 we will uh, ricochet from one to the other. Looking forward to that. So, elephants, how, how do you do it? I, mean, I initially thought about um, the elephant in our museum, which made me think, oh, we can do the history of elephant hunting, um, the, the changing desires for ivory and how that is understood across time, the history of of collecting, the history of uh, displaying um, animals and also the, you know, the kind of the philosophical process behind that, what's appropriate display and what's not. So that was my immediate, uh, immediate thought, James. What Ooh, about you? Very nice. I, I was also thinking of human interaction with elephants, not just in terms of poaching, but understanding them, uh, you know, actually, actually coming across elephants and that whole sort of history of exploring what they are and cutting them open and dissecting them and and mm. and mapping them all out but also human interaction in other ways so you know circus elephants and and I was reading a very interesting book um by a guy called Ronald Tobias uh which was published in 2013 called The Behemoth The History of the Elephant in America and it is absolutely fascinating these were used as working animals in America working mm. on farms in mines on railroads even in hollywood even in professional baseball and one of the funniest anecdotes that i came across uh was a uh, an animal called tusco tusco was quite a common name for for elephants at this time and it is a drunken elephant and it's an elephant and we're talking here you know early 20th century um and this elephant sort of escapes from from the zoo goes on a massive sort of rampage around the town uh, and he and re, if I read here, he he ran through backyards, laundry lines streaming behind him, knocked down fences and skidded to a stop at the corner of State and Metcalf. When he caught a whiff of alcohol, the crowd could tell something had caught his attention, but not what. And then Tusco turned to face the town's tavern. The crowd roared and the elephant goes into the bar. And this was 1922. And it goes on. Alcohol was the vice of choice for elephants. Heavy drinkers, they often drank until they passed out, got silly, 
or went on drunken toots, whatever drunken toots are. They drank beer and wine, but preferred bourbon and Tennessee whiskey when they could get it. The jackpot, however, was a big pile of sour mash like the one Tusco found in Cedro Woolley. He, as Tusco gorged on the sour mash, the men took out their own flasks and went on a giant lark as the crowd grew more than a hundred. After gorging on the sour mash, Tusco turned his attention to a small farmhouse sitting at the edge of the field. He trotted over, looked through the windows, and as the people in the house scrambled up the stairs, he tried to knock down the building. <laughs> so there we are, drunken elephants escaped from captivity. I like the idea that they were all used in America. I wonder how they got there. Were they were they bred and then used, or were they transported? Is there a whole history of elephant transportation from there Africa? There is a whole history of, of elephant transportation and all sorts of stuff on how to catch an elephant that I might talk about later on. So how do you actually catch an individual elephant? Mm. You know, do you lure it? Do you do you Pits. trap it down a know. pit? Yeah. Um, and then how do you how do you bring it across? You know, presumably uh, by by boat. Cool. Um, because you know, those of you who've seen your Dumbo um, know that, of course, uh, elephants are, are flown by storks uh, <laughs> and dropped onto trains. But if, um, they, if you are bringing, bringing an elephant by boat, you have to immobilise it. Because uh, even a slight movement this way or that way can really, really mess with the stability of the ship. Yeah, so you'd either you'd probably either drug it or you'd tie it down or, you know... Something like that. Oh, these are hypnosis. These are holes in my in my knowledge about <laughs> elephant sound. About elephant transportation. Don't worry. Well, let me just talk a little bit about about hunting elephants because that's how I got thinking about it. And there is a male, a, a huge bull elephant in the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter. Um, it was shot in the Aberdeary Mountains, uh, north of Nairobi. I've been lucky enough to actually drive through those. They're amazing. Um, by a big game hunter called Charles Peel. And there's some extraordinary photos of this Charles Peel. I'm looking at one now. And he is surround, literally surrounded by the skins of animals, looking very pleased with himself with a gun. Looking at them now, I can probably make out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, gosh. It's one of those amazing uh, photos that you suddenly realise exactly what you're looking at. And I thought initially there were about five heads of animals. And actually, I think there are about 40. Um, and I can see all sorts of of, of uh, animals here, most of them cats or dogs with ferocious teeth. This guy, Charles Peel, he lived from 1869 to 1931. Um, he, as a young man, went on safari to Kenya and Uganda and became inspired to become a hunter. He hunted, um, we know, all over the place in Australia, South America, China, Malaysia, Arctic, the Arctic Ocean, Franz Joseph Land, that's quite good work going out there, Assam in northeastern India, North America and Scotland. And one of these kind of big ironies of people like Charles Peel, these big game hunters from the late 19th and early 20th century, is their love for natural history. I mean, he said a love of natural history should be taught in every school, but as it is, the ignorance on this subject displayed by so-called clever people in this country is simply appalling. So he has this love for natural history, but at the same time, there's this, this paradox of the big game hunter of this period. They, they adore killing um, these enormous animals. 
Um, and he he loved big game hunting. He talked about it as a pastime. It exercises all the faculties which go to make a man most manly. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it, James? The big game hunter must be endowed with great powers of endurance, self-denial, forbearance and tact when dealing with the natives. And he must be able to act with great bravery, often at a moment's notice. So he, he travels the world shooting these animals. He brings them home to a Museum of Natural History and Anthropology in Oxford. He then moves down to Devon and he offers the collection to the Royal Albert Memorial Museum, uh, where it gets moved. It actually stays in a hut, a kind of a temporary store. It's there for 60 years. Uh, the, the, the initial um, collections arrive in 1919, with a load more skins arriving the following year. And he writes, uh, again, something else interesting about big game hunting here. He wrote the popular guide to exhibition of big game trophies. Um, That's interesting. So it's actually a book about how to display your trophies once you've caught them. Big game hunting is the hardest work in the world, but it is the attendant disappointments, the privations, the difficulties and the dangers that make it the greatest and grandest of all sports. It's true we cannot all be big game hunters. But it has always been a marvel and a mystery to me why so many young men, such as city clerks and shop assistants, toil away the whole of their lives indoors at 15 shillings to 35 shillings a week when, by emigrating to one of our many great colonies, they would in all probability earn a higher wage and what is more, much more important, lead a far healthier life. Now, this kind of the context of the British Empire in this period towards the end of the 19th century is something I'm actually going to be talking a little bit about later. But for now, I just want to talk about this whole business of of uh, elephant hunting in particular. Um, and I found a wonderful book by a Mr. Parker, 1979, and he was the first one to actually consider the history of the ivory trade. And he wrote a pamphlet Um, which was published by the US Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. And thanks to the wonders of the internet, I love it when this happens, James. There's a book you want to read and you eventually track it down. I found it in the University of Florida, their library there, their online library there. Um, And this is a magnificent document. And he makes a really interesting point, actually, about um, uh, elephant hunting and ivory hunting. And he starts off his book not... uh, just by exploring, he goes on to explore how um, imperial, it's called imperial, hunters from empires who, who've travelled to America, Africa and India to hunt their elephants, how, how they go on and they um, create this need and desire for ivory, which leads to a loss of elephant numbers, either through direct action, these guys doing the hunting, or through poaching. And he actually starts by writing about the African involvement in the ivory trade and establishing that actually ivory is a much um, uh, prized item before uh, anyone else gets involved. African involvement in the ivory trade now and in the past has deep roots in indigenous values to which external economic influence is additional. Evidence in support of this is abundant in literature and applies to all parts of the continent. Petherick, in 1869, the first white man to record impressions of the Zande, what is now southern Suzanne and northern, northern Zaire, wrote, The only use made of ivory by the Niam Nam was for ornaments, such as bracelets and necklaces. Some were ingeniously cut in imitation of cowrie shells and neatly cut flakes like the scales of a fish. 
were curiously attached to a band like piece of ribbon and worn by the females around the neck. Both men and women wore their hair plaited in thick masses covering the neck to the shoulders. This they combed out with long ivory pins from six inches to upwards of a foot in length, one extremely pointed, the other increasing in thickness like a cone, three or four inches of which were carved into pretty patterns and dyed black with the decoration of a root. When their hair had been arranged, two of the largest of these pins were struck horizontally through it at the back of the head. Between these smaller ones were inserted, forming a semicircle similar to a Spanish lady's comb. And then another example here, this is from a writer called Dryberg, writing in 1923, recording of a tribe in Uganda. The only mark of aristocracy is a bracelet of ivory worn on the left wrist or suspended from the neck over the chest, an ivory ornament called ogwil carved to contain fat for anointing the body, and often delicately stenciled in block point. These are only worn by men who are chiefs or come by descent, however remotely, from the stock of chiefs, although any man is allowed to possess the unworked tusk. Fascinating stuff, James. There's so many more accounts, but this guy starts off his book by, um, it's sort of remarkable actually, he's basically written a, written a history of the ivory trade by um, initially exploring all of the different uses of ivory um, by Africans in Africa before Europeans got involved and started um, killing all of the elephants. Fascinating, fascinating, Sam. Absolutely fascinating. I want to take take a different route uh, into elephants and start with the question of how do you catch an elephant? And we sort of talked about this a little bit, but in the 18th century, there is an obsession with elephants. Elephants seem to be sort of coming across into London. It's all about the East India Company. So they're coming across and people are able to to see them and view them. And there are big studies of them, books sort of charting them um, and there are discussions about how you catch them and there are several methods would you believe for catching them the first involves taming wild elephants and the way that you do this is you introduce them to tame female elephants who then condition the wild elephant into subordination and these female Elephants, in fact, have a name. They're called kumkis, and they're referred to in um, a book called Animal Biography by uh, by Bingley in 1824. As soon as the hunters have determined on the animal they mean to secure, three of the kumchis are conducted silently and slowly at a little distance from each other, nearly to the place where he is feeding. The kumchis advance advance cautiously, feeding as they go along. When the male perceives them approaching, if he takes the alarm and is viciously inclined, he beats the ground with his trunk and makes a noise, showing evident marks of displeasure. This, however, is not often the case. He generally allows them to approach and sometimes even advances to meet them. So that's one technique. You basically lure him with some you know, trained domestic, I mean, they're not domestic, but certainly trained uh, peaceful elephants. The other is to basically, as you were saying earlier on, you dig a pit that is fathoms deep near where the elephant feeds. And what you do is you then lay poles over the pits, you disguise them with leaves and you bait them with food. 
particularly a food that the, of which an elephant is particularly fond. And then the elephant will will come along after his food, fall in, will be caught, and then will be will be taken off. And this is described in the London Chronicle, uh, and it says at length. He sees some of them coming towards him and flatters himself that they are come to help him out. This, in fact, they do. But being of the tame, domesticated kind, as soon as they have pulled him out by means of ropes, they make him prisoner and deliver him up into the hands of their leader. So this this is how once the elephant has fallen down into the pit, they bring him out and they capture him. The other way, the third way in which you capture an elephant is by sparring with an elephant uh, and this involves several people um, coming along and they basically try and sort of almost fight the elephant and two at the front um, will will basically draw his attention and then a third person sneaks around the back of him leaps onto him and then ties a noose around him and then you've got him caught and you can take the elephant home and do what you want with him. Now, this is all leading from what you were talking about, about uh, capturing elephants, to why you might want to capture an elephant. And we've talked about the way in which elephants might be transported. And in fact, elephants were transported by the East India Company uh, into uh, Britain. Um, Sadly, many of the elephants would actually uh, either die on the voyage or then would would not survive particularly long in the sort of colder conditions that we have in Britain uh, afterwards. However, um, there is a trend to have elephants on the stage during the 18th century, so to actually have performing elephants. And I don't mean sort of elephants performing in the way that you have you might have bear baiting, but actually elephants that are acting or or appear in plays and listen to this for a for a uh, an a description for you this is from the this is from the morning post in 1811 and it, it describes a, a newly arrived elephant that's come over from bengal that performs in the covent garden theater as the principal star in would you believe a pantomime uh, called Padmanaba or the golden fish. So could you imagine this? An elephant on the on the stage here. And there's a description in the morning in the morning post here. The the font is terrible, so it's it's sort of quite difficult to read. The elephant, which has so long been the talk of the town, entered in the early part of the performance and was very well received. He did, however, not do all he was expected to. But this is to be ascribed to the terror which the animal felt at the shouts and cheers of the house. Can you imagine this in an 18th century pantomime and a great big elephant comes on? He came forward with Zelika, Mrs Parker, as Columbine and her father on his back and was under the immediate guidance of Alaska, who with little assistance managed him halfway down the stage. But when he advanced closer to the spectators, his confusion was so great as to confuse the armed bands upon each side. Something was given him to drink, but he was inexorable, and nothing could prevail upon him to remain more than a few moments on the stage. He, however, did not loudly express his displeasure, and upon the whole, his debut was favourable. So there we are. We have a very favourable 
uh, review of an elephant upon the stage. An elephant also appeared at the Adelphi Theatre in 1830, and we have what looks like a poster of this. And I'll read this to you. The great white elephant alive is to be seen in this town. This is to give notice to all persons of quality, gentlemen and others, that there is lately arrived in this town from the kingdom of Siam in the East Indies a great white elephant, being nine foot high, weighing above five thousand in weight, eating in twenty-four hours' time one hundred pound weight of hay, besides corn and bread, this wonderful creature having a head as big as a barrel, legs as big as a man's middle, and ears as big as a shoulder of mutton, performs several actions as swift and nimble as his master commands him. First he takes his master's hats, salutes the company, and makes reverence upon his knees, his master asking him where he loves Queen Anne. Then he points with his trunk towards his heart, and he must do for her. He sounds for her on the trumpet, but for the great Turk he will do nothing but make a dreadful noise, shaking his head. He exercises the musket and discharges the same at the word of command like a soldier, likewise flourishes the colours to admiration, takes a piece of money from the ground and delivers it to his master. He kneels down to receive people upon his body and bears two on his trunk and two on his ears and ten on his back. He walks about with a kettle on his trunk, begging of the company some money to drink their healths. Then he makes his reverence to the company as a testimony of thanks, and performs abundance more of very rare and curious actions than can be inserted in this paper to the great wonder and admiration and satisfaction of all spectators. So we have then an elephant on the stage performing. And what's amazing about this sort of advertisement, this description, is that they're describing something that people haven't seen. So the, the, you know, this wonderful creature, and then they're describing the physical form, the head as big as a barrel, the legs as big as a man's middle, the ears as big as a shoulder of mutton, and then all the sort of tricks uh, that he goes through. So there we are, catching elephants and putting them on the stage, <clears throat> Sam. Very good. Ears as big as a shoulder of mutton. That's a really bad description. An elephant's ears are a lot bigger than a shoulder of mutton. I haven't eaten a shoulder of mutton in a long time, uh, mm. but I'm imagining yes, probably. I mean, maybe yeah. they're the size of a maybe they're the size of a sheep. Maybe yeah. Well, pretty massive sheep. Anyway, they are it's, big. It's a, a proper bewilderment at the size of these beasts. Um, I'm going to go back to the, you know the last quarter of the 19th century when I've been talking about empire. We had Charles Reed um, exclaiming over why, why so many people had not suddenly upped and left and moved abroad to the enormous British empire. It certainly is a significant period of time in terms of the growth of the British empire. So in 1858, British government seizes control um, of the territories and treaty arrangements of the former East India Company, which is, becomes a, a pretty serious thing. Um, it includes modern India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. It all becomes the Indian Empire between 1875 uh, and 1900. Those years as well, that's when Britain joins the scramble for Africa. So there are enormous games being made out in East Africa, South Africa, West Africa. And it also includes um, temporary control of Egypt. It's, it, within this context. You've got someone called Mary Hewitt who comes along. She was born in 1799, died in 1888. She was a poet, she was an author. 
and um, a very famous poem called The Spider and the Fly. You might recognise, James. We maybe maybe mention that when we come to do this, the fly. Anyway, uh, in 1821, she marries William Howitt and she starts a career of, of authorship. And between them, they write 180 books. It's unbelievable. They, they, they hang out in the literary circles with Charles Dickens, with William and, and his wife, Dorothy Wordsworth. Um, they become a real force in the publishing industry. And one of the books she writes in 1875 is um, it's called The Natural History Stories for My Juvenile Friends. And it's a wonderful book. This It covers all sorts of animals. Um, but the thing you need to know about it is that the very first chapter, in fact, the entire f- first 51 pages of the entire book are on the elephant, reflecting, I think, a very strong um, interest, contemporary interest in all things elephanty, I suppose, amongst kids in 1875. No doubt the result of Britain's expanding overseas empire, both in India and Africa. There's a, a strong religious theme which runs through her her work. Um, as she writes here in the introduction, every portion of that vast, thick-skinned body proves the wisdom and beneficent power of the creator. Uh, but I particularly wanted to take you to uh, something she writes, James, because we both live in Devon. She writes, uh, uh, this is the first paragraph of the entire book, and it's on the Duke of Devonshire's elephant. Even when transported from its native land to England, the elephant can be trained like a child. A fine elephant was sent as a present by a lady in India to the late Duke of Devonshire and was kept at the Duke's villa in Chiswick. This animal was remarkable for the gentleness of its disposition and from the kindness with which it was treated and the free range that was allowed it probably came nearer to an elephant in a state of nature than any other which ever appeared in this country. The house erected for her shelter was of large dimensions (laughs) and well ventilated. And she had besides the range of a paddock of considerable extent. At the call of her keeper, she came out of her house and immediately took up a broom ready to perform his bidding in sweeping the grass or paths. She would follow him with a pail or watering pot around the enclosure. Her reward was a carrot and some water. But previously to satisfying her thirst, she would exhibit her ingenuity by emptying the contents of a soda water bottle, which was tightly corked. This she did by pressing the bottle against the ground with her foot so as to hold it securely at an angle of 45 degrees and gradually twisting out the cork with her trunk, although it was very little above the edge of the neck. Then, without altering the position, she turned her trunk around the bottle so that she might reverse it and thus empty the contents into the extremity of the bucket. Anyway, it carries on describing this wonderful elephant uh, belonging to the Duke of Devonshire in the early 19th century. So there are all sorts of historical themes here in this little excerpt from Mary Howitt's book. You've got um, considerations of a growing Victorian empire and the fascination back in the UK with it and with stories and with animals coming from the empire. You've got a theme about publishing and how the publishing industry reacted to this desire to learn about the exotic animals in India and Africa. We've got a theme about collecting and, of course, we've got a theme about exotic animals as pets. So it's a wonderful little history, James, from which you can go off in all sorts of different directions. Oh, lovely. My last little segment uh, connects with this quite nicely Uh, and it's back to the 18th century and it's about the way in which it picking up on this sort of fascination with the elephants and it's the way in which people dissected 
an anatomized elephant. And there's a real interest in this. So elephants didn't just die and sort of, you know, get sent away, you know, and buried. They were actually then cut up and examined and, and ordered. And one of the chief men who did this in the 18th century is a man called John Hunter, who lived between 1728 and 1793. And he was famous for being the royal surgeon to King George III. And he had privileged access to these elephants. Uh, and if you have a look in the Hunterian collection, there are over 60-odd specimens of elephants which were prepared by or for Hunter uh, during the period 1760 to 1793. So you've got all sorts of things there, things that are uh, sort of dry, so things like teeth and tusks, but also wet things, so they're tissues and organs and all of those kinds of things. Um, and he, he sort of, um, you know, he gets hold of them, cuts them up, but then they have a, they have a really interesting afterlife. So people are fascinated by these elephants dying and what happens to them. And you see them cropping up in newspaper extracts that show that people are really interested. There's an extract in 1776 in St. James's Chronicle. Tuesday evening died in Pimlico the oldest of the two elephants belonging to His Majesty the King, the king made a present of it on Wednesday to Dr. Hunter for dissection, and yesterday morning the doctor attended by near 20 of his pupils began to work upon the beast. The other is to be removed to Kensington next week. And there are all sorts of examples like this that crop up. There's another one uh, on November the 3rd, uh, 1777. Mr. Lever's Museum of Natural Curiosities is open every day from 10 o'clock till 4. Any gentleman or lady subscribing two guineas may have admission during museum hours for one year and of their subscription. Tickets at five shillings and threepence each delivered at all hours at the gate of Leicester House. Mr. Lever thinks it incumbent upon him to inform the public that there are within these few days many most rare and superb articles added to the collection, among which are the elephant most graciously presented to him by His Majesty, the hippopotamus which is supposed to be the behemoths described by Job, and the large Greenland bear, the oriental tiger, and many other new acquisitions. So there's this sort of real interest in these elephants. Once they're... Once they're once they're given to people and once they're cut up. There's another uh, account here, an anatomical account of the elephant accidentally burnt in Dublin. Thus the elephant was disjointed by candlelight. Some parts were burnt, most of those that were not were more or less defaced by being parboiled. This may satisfy the Royal Society how difficult it is to give a satisfactory anatomical account of the elephant, and that the following slender one is given to show my readiness to serve them and my obedience to your commands. So there we are, Sam. Not only a fascination in popping elephants on the stage, elephants in zoos and menageries, but also a real scientific concern 
who actually study them anatomically. And then once they have died, they have this sort of afterlife in, in newspaper reports that people are curious about where they, where they end up, what is happening to their parts, how they are displayed. So there we are. Mm, loved it. Fascinating stuff. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed our history of elephants. I hugely did. And we promise you we're going to come back with ants and maybe bears as well. Uh, looking forward to that. Do please follow me on social media at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. We are also all over social media. So you can catch us on Instagram and also like us on our Facebook page. And also go along and check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com for books, shows coming in the future uh, once theatres are open again and also all our homeschooling and back episodes of this podcast so go there check it out and have fun that's it for now guys cheerio bye bye take care bye